You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 83. to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Our guest on today's show is Crawford Allen, who is a senior director at Traffic, which is a wildlife trade network created through a collaboration between the World Wildlife Fund and the IUCN, which stands for the International Union for Conservation of Nature. Crawford and I had a fascinating conversation about the extremely complex global economic relationships that lead to wildlife crime and the illegal trade in certain wildlife products. Crawford has dedicated his career to working on wildlife crime issues, and it was really wonderful to hear about some of the successes that he has had over just the past few years, generating a massive amount of political will towards resolving these issues. It's a real honor to have him on the show. Let's jump into this conversation. Yeah, hello. My name is Crawford Allen. I'm a senior director at World Wildlife Fund for working on a trade program called Traffic, um, the Wildlife Trade Network. That's a partnership between WWF and IUCN. And I've been working for nearly 25 years now on wildlife trade and wildlife crime issues. So I, I want you to give us a little bit of background on Traffic. Um, you said this is a, a collaborative program between um, the IUCN and World Wildlife Fund. Um, where did this idea come from? Well, uh, traffic was spawned actually out of the uh, the international treaty called CITES, the Convention on International Trade and in Endangered Species, um, that was was set up in uh, 1976 and really uh, was an initiative that needed some sort of independent monitoring body like a watchdog to help look at the wildlife trade and inform the treaty on emerging threats and uh, at the time uh, WWF and IUCN were were involved in helping establish the CITES treaty and um, between them they formed the first of its kind kind of hybrid organization between them um, to set up this uh, what was a program of both of them jointly back in the day um, to look at uh, the scale, the nature of wildlife trade, provide sound scientific advice in an objective way to help inform decision making in CITES. But obviously, since that time, traffic has evolved way beyond the CITES kind of mandate of support, and is much more now about understanding the dynamics of trade, the pushes and the pulls, the positive and negative elements, and how to best ensure that if there is trade, that trade is sustainable and beneficial to both nature and communities. And um, those elements that are negative are eradicated wherever we can uh, and providing data and research and guidance to to stakeholders, governments, other conservation groups on how to really tackle challenges of wildlife trade. Crawford, you mentioned that, that you've been involved in these issues for a long time. Maybe you can just give us a little background on yourself. You know, how did you first get involved uh, in this issue? Well, you know, it's it's one of those things that I... I've just had a passion from a you know from from infancy almost uh, for wildlife and nature and particularly for for African critters. I had a big passion for elephants and rhinos um, uh, from a young age. Avid reader, got into to this area, st- followed conservation into my career path through my studies 
uh, and I got a lucky break with IUCN. Um, I was an intern with IUCN on the working on the red list. So, uh, and they before I finished that internship, they offered me a permanent position, and I was basically kind of documenting extinction, if you like, checking off another list of this this list of species that are most threatened with extinction globally. Um, and I was involved in really documenting that about how species were threatened and why and what their category of threat was. Uh, and after a while, that's kind of a depressing. If you're sort of going, oh, there's another species gone, um, and often at the hand of man. And I think that one thing I really started to tune into was the role of humanity in sort of the over-exploitation of nature, and particularly wild species. Um, and I kind of got very interested in the trade elements. And I volunteered for this organization called Traffic, um, and I morphed into that role and was offered a job with them where I helped them out with doing um, law enforcement support um, where we would be providing intelligence information from research and investigations around the world uh, into some of the, the criminal networks that were um, poaching and trafficking wildlife. And I helped a lot of law enforcement cases, providing them with information, helped them a lot with going on raids and, and kicking down the doors of these criminals and helping bring them to prosecution. And that was that was really a satisfying role for me for many years for traffic in managing these investigations and research around the world. Uh, and eventually I ended up in, in the US um, where I wanted to try and do something different. I wanted to try and catalyze a change and bring about influence and more resources to combat the scourge of wildlife crime. Um, and I ended up in Washington where I thought I could be most influential. Uh, I got involved very much in trying to to leverage resources and attention and highest level political will for this issue. Um, and I really got into that in a big way. This issue revolving around wildlife crime, it's changed a lot in the last couple of decades. I mean, maybe you can just sort of break that down for us. I mean, what changes have you seen um, as far as the scale and the nature of wildlife crime? Yeah, I, th- I think we have seen some, some major negative transformation um, of wildlife crime from being much more small uh, operations of, of, you know, trafficking in smaller numbers of products or wildlife um, run by more amateur operations to changing the game to becoming a highly profitable um, business stream within some of the major criminal organized networks of the world. I would say certainly in the 70s and 80s, you were seeing issues like the smuggling of, you know, parrots and um, wild animal skins like ocelot skins from Latin America, for example, on a smaller piecemeal ad hoc basis. Um, I think now we're seeing mainstream industrialized scale poaching and trafficking of some of our, our nature's most precious wildlife. So obviously elephants, you're very aware of the crisis with elephants and how that um, 30,000 elephants every year are being killed for their ivory and, you know, tons and tons of ivory is being shipped from Africa to the major consumer markets in Asia. And that is the nature of that change is a commercialization led by organized criminal elements that have started to set up operations through Africa, quite often Asian-based criminal syndicates who have set up operations in, a- in Africa and because they have realized the profits are so high, the risks are so low, 
the chance of detection and penalties are relatively low, although that is changing in a very positive way. Um, and so it's become part of the mainstream criminal trafficking uh, situation this world has been suffering. And typically, those that are working and smuggling uh, drugs and arms and people are now also seeing the benefits for their business of smuggling in wildlife too. This issue is, like you said, it's become mainstream. It's so widespread. What's the big picture approach towards solving this issue? Well, you know, I think the, the positive impact has is, is started. I think we're starting to see success. Uh, if you talk to me back in uh, 2012, the start of 2012, my, my, my demeanor and attitude would have been much more negative. I'm now really hopeful because of what has happened. What has happened is a major sea change in pol- of attention and political will. Um, in no small part, the role of the U.S. government particularly uh, in elevating this uh, internationally to the highest levels. Uh, we started a campaign, in, uh, we, we, we developed it in 2011, started to roll it out on wildlife crime to try to push this up to the political channels. And, and we were fortunate in 2012 that our campaign was listened to by the then Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, who had a call for action in November 2012 that was, it was the game changer then, which elevated this issue, put it on a platform, gave it the status it needed and the investment of research and resources that subsequently ended up in a uh, executive order by President Obama of the U.S. government, uh, a national strategy for the U.S., a task force of 17 agencies working on wildlife crime in the U.S., and an implementation plan that was backed up by tens of millions of dollars of overseas aid to really roll out a program of solutions to help stop this crime crisis. Now, that's all great. High-level political will, resources, attention. What's happening now is those resources are actually starting to form a foundation of, a solu- of solutions that are coming to coalesce together, that are starting to show progress. So we've started to see that the level and rate of poaching of elephants in Africa is starting to slow, finally. The rate of poaching of uh, rhinos in South Africa is starting to slow. Tigers are starting to come back. Populations are increasing in, in some places. The combination and the suite of high-level attention and pressure, awareness and resources, and new solutions being created by some of the brightest minds in the world, and just a passion for change has really catalyzed something that we're seeing results for now. So we are hoping that the worst is past. Uh, We can't be sure, but everyone has to work together to keep up this momentum, to roll out this suite of solutions and keep it going. Uh, I think we can't lose sight of that. We can't let the momentum drop. The momentum drops. All of this investment over the past five years of effort and attention and resources is going to start to to, uh, to be wasted. Uh, and so we can't let political agendas or other attention wane on this issue right now. Maybe you could give us a few sort of concrete examples. President Obama declares this executive action regarding the wildlife trafficking issue, how does that translate? How does that filter through? And, you know, what are some of the most important results? There, there are a lot, right? There's a lot to mention. The good news is that a lot of great things have happened. So some of the things that you can think about, so they're, they're framed in different ways. I mean, some of them are very much on the ground, direct results through practical projects on the ground, but others are much higher level through pol- policy and diplomacy. 
And I think one of the biggest game changers that's come about through the current U.S. administration is through the U.S. and China strategic and economic dialogue. What that has meant is a dialogue around economic relationships between these two behemoth nations has really also included, surprisingly, this very strong and positive dialogue on wildlife crime, and in particular on the issue of elephant ivory trade. And probably the people listening to this are probably very familiar with the fact that the majority of the trade in elephant ivory nowadays is is going to China. It's the major consumer market, and the wealth um, that has risen in China um, has brought about a new breed of um, demand uh, that has surged and caused this um, poaching crisis. So when you have high-level engagement between the U.S. government and the Chinese government, sometimes in a quite clever dance, a diplomatic dance, almost a competitive dance of one-upmanship, who can do the next thing on wildlife crime? So when President Obama about announced uh, a $10 million grant to, to for Africa, the Chinese also then announced a $10 million grant for Africa. When uh, the U.S. destroyed publicly six tons of elephant ivory in a statement against ivory trade, the Chinese came out and destroyed 6.1 tons of elephant ivory. When the U.S. announced that it was going to try to ultimately curtail and almost cease its entire ivory, domestic ivory market and trade, China has done the same thing. Um, they're moving forward in this stepwise game, if you like, of, of really seeing who's going to take the next step and it's actually spurring each other on to go to the next level. Um, It has had great impact. If you can see that China is now intending to close down its ivory market, that is the game changer. When they do that, the demand for ivory will dwindle and the prices will drop. Um, There will not be a legal outlet for ivory, and it will only be black market ivory. So this large-scale availability that you can currently see where black market ivory is being laundered into a legal market will effectively go away, and it will make enforcement a lot easier. So that is absolutely critical. It's been a really interesting approach, and I can only congratulate the governments of the U.S. and China for that, albeit in a rather unusual way of working. In terms of other successes... I think you can see that a number of mega projects are starting to evolve, um, which are really new and innovative ways of working and looking at the different angles in this whole issue. So one of the areas that really has not been addressed adequately is the issue of reducing demand for illegal wildlife products in consumer markets and also trying to change consumer behavior. And I think this now has received a major injection of attention and resources that is seeing to have impact. So a number of programs and projects that organizations like WF and Traffic have been rolling out, um, particularly in Asian countries like Vietnam, where the rhino horn demand is, in Thailand, where there's ivory demand, and in China, are starting to show very positive signs that they're having an effect upon the consumer demand and reducing demand. Other areas of work, for example, the organization WildAid with this major campaign on Sharkfin has shown to be having a major impact on the demand for Sharkfin, which was a very traditional use for Sharkfin soup, in, um, particularly in wedding banquets. It was the food to serve at wedding banquets. And now a large, a large uh, part of society in Asia is rejecting uh, the, the consumption of Sharkfin soup. 
So this is, this is one of the areas that actually the attention and the investment is really paying off. There are lots of other areas, obviously on the ground in law enforcement support, greater capacity, use of technologies, you know, the use of detector dogs at ports, areas where there were no resources before really are starting to work. They're starting to detect multiple shipments of illegal wildlife that they wouldn't do before. You can see the criminals are having to really change the way they operate because they're being detected now. Um, they're trying. They're having to take far more complex uh, maneuvers, if you like, to outsmart law enforcement. Um, and before they were doing this with impunity, now they're getting a lot of their trafficking. Um, they're losing money. They're they're having their operations disrupted by strong law enforcement. These are complex global economic issues, and it's really difficult to sort of tease out what the cause and effect is going to be. The one incident that a lot of folks have pointed to is this 2008 sale of uh, this massive ivory stockpile in Africa, um, which World Wildlife Fund and you know a number of other large international conservation organ- organizations supported the legal sale of this massive ivory stockpile back in 2008 because there was this belief that this would flood the market with ivory, um, reduce the demand, and the price for ivory would go down. But obviously, you know, in the years since 2008, the demand for these, you know, for ivory has skyrocketed. And it seems to me like there's been this really dramatic shift in the perspective that uh, conservation organizations have as far as, uh, you know, what the best approach towards resolving these issues are, right? And these days, you know, you mentioned that um, instead of selling off ivory stockpiles, governments are crushing them and destroying them. How do you know what impact, for example, the sale of a stockpile versus destroying that ivory? How do you tease out what impact that's going to have? Yeah, that's that's uh, a great point. And I think, you know, it's it's one of those things with elephant ivory that we are lucky that we had the foresight, I think, um, back in 1997 um, through the CITES process to realize that the way the cycle of decision-making goes is that quite often we don't have the data we need at the time decisions are made to predict what's going to happen. And I think that's why the elephant trade information system called EDIS was set up by traffic and endorsed and, and run by the CITES parties to try and provide sound scientific analysis and data on the ivory trade to try and help predict that. And combining with the information on the ivory trade, the information on poaching of elephants through a system called MIKE, the Monitoring of Legal Killing of Elephants. If you don't like the acronyms, you can blame me because I created them. Um, back in any, uh, whatever it was, nine at the time, 97, I can't remember now, it's been a long time. Um, so, you know, these international uh, systems that are set up under CITES really have, have now evolved to a stage where it's, it's able to, to, I think, tune in a lot more to predictions on how decisions and impacts are made. And I think at the time... Of, there was a sale prior to 2008, the first one of sale, experimental sale of ivory, legal sale of, of ivory that came from legally acquired ivory, so from natural mortality and management, not from a legal sale. Um, well, that one of sale went just to Japan, to the market of Japan. There actually was, in, after that, between 2000 and 2005, a very marked and dramatic drop in uh, elephant poaching for five years because the market was saturated, because the main consumer market had what it needed, and because the money from that sale went back into the conservation of elephants and the communities around that. And so that model approach 
then was something that people thought, well, it worked then. Well, we've got the, the poaching since 2005 started to pick up again. Um, can we do the, the same thing? And I think that, you know, this was a decision by the Saudis governments. This wasn't something that NGOs decided. But what happened was nobody knew that China would come into the game. Nobody knew and could predict the rise of China and the economic demand of China and this giant dragon awakening and trying to consume all the ivory it could and just a massive surge that nobody could predict. And so when that second one-off sale took place, um, the data was not in the systems to be able to show the influence and role of China at that point. It wasn't until afterwards. So it was a retrospective view of what the challenge was. And I think in hindsight now, if we'd had the data we needed then, we would have probably been able to say, no, we probably don't support this because it didn't turn out well. It's very clear that it fueled the fire of demand um, and the, the massive surging wealth and, and the, the, the sudden desire to have the rare and exotic that they couldn't, you know, society couldn't afford before was something nobody could have predicted. And of course, it didn't go well. And so I think, you know, you're, we're coming to a stage now where other measures are being employed, measures like crushing and destroying stocks of ivory to try and send a strong message that ivory is worthless. Some econ economists are saying, well, is, it, is that the message it's sending? Or is it another message? Is it a message that's saying, yes, ivory is becoming even more scarce, even more rare, therefore even more valuable and something even more desirable? Um, also, sometimes things that are taboo become quite desirable too. I think the jury is really out on, the, on, on that dynamic and whether or not these um, destruction events are having a positive or negative impact on elephant conservation. I think certainly for many conservation organizations, they feel that the positive benefit of trying to change people's attitudes, having high-level public events, making governments rally behind these issues is more than sufficient to justify the destruction of ivory stocks. Um, it's a question that we'll, we'll, we will see evolve in future. We'll see whether it has an impact. I think we probably won't need to worry about it, in fact, if China does ban its domestic ivory trade completely. I think that will have a huge dampening effect on the market. And I think it will basically block out that ability of individuals that only want to buy legal product from buying legal product, which is a big part of the market, because a lot of these people don't want to buy legal ivory. Um, and I think that will have a very, very positive effect for elephants. Um, and so the, the sort of experiment with the destructions, um, we may not have a good strong indication about what that will really mean, but it certainly is giving, um, is giving force to the argument that awareness and high-level political drives and statements by governments is having an influence um, and is an important thing to proceed with. Um, we're not certainly saying to people, don't do that, because we don't know. I think we've got a situation here where people are trying what they can to get the job done, but they've got the best intentions, and we're hoping that um, everybody working together on this, despite maybe some difference of opinion on some of the detail, well, really, when we come together, we've got that strength that we'll, we'll solve this problem in the long term. There are many, many illegal wildlife trade issues and lots and lots of different illegal wildlife products that are um, traded um, all around the globe. Is your approach to each individual case tailored specifically to the issues surrounding that particular product? 
there are so many issues of illegal trade in different species and you know obviously pangolins come to mind as the most um, trafficked mammal um, you may be aware of these sort of scaly anteater type of animals um, they are, have surprisingly taken on a life of their own because of the the, the nature of this, the, the massive um, trafficking in them for their meat and their scales for medicine um, and they've gone almost overnight from being quite a, a more common species into a threatened species and, and there's been a lot of momentum and interest around them and, and you've seen how different solutions have been proposed for that um, and it, you know there will be a meeting of the CITES conference of the parties in South Africa the global CITES treaty meeting where they make decisions about which species should be protected uh, under CITES and uh, pangolins uh, from Africa are on up being tabled for strict protection uh, in trade and I think the way that this this is a good example where there is a legal trade in allowed in in some some species but when that trade becomes too damaging you have to add protection so in this case uh, this would be for pangolins so we'll see where that goes but I think it's pretty sure that they're going to become banned from trade and commercial trade uh, and obviously that's a really important measure but it would be nice if um, we never got to that situation where we found that people and society, if they are exploiting wildlife, trading in wildlife, that they're doing it in a sustainable way. That also has provides benefits and incentives to keep the habitats in which the animals live and the animals or the plants themselves alive too because of the longer term benefit for everybody. Um, but unfortunately, things happen. Greed happens and desperation and wildlife just gets over exploited and have to prohibit trade and keep them out of trade and that's that's uh, that's something we don't want to see are you involved in trying to predict future markets in illegal wildlife products if so i mean what actions would be taken to uh, sort of prevent another catastrophic situation for uh, a species like this we're doing exactly that and of course you know, in the case of like, things like pangolins, we were, uh, along with IUCN, particularly the ones that raised the red flag, you know, back in uh, many years ago, probably nearly 10 years ago now, saying that we predicted that this trade was going to evolve and that protection measures need to be put in place. The problem is until it goes beyond that tipping point where it just becomes so obvious and so damaging, governments and people don't listen. Conservation community listens, but a lot of those people that got the ability to protect those species don't listen to you and we have always our role has been to look for those uh, next new challenge and try and predict what will happen and try and prevent it happening um, but again it's like the elephant issue you don't people don't take it seriously until it's the 11th hour and that's unfortunate and I think that there is an understanding that we need to do better we need to deal with this and, and prevent the crises before they happen um, and what we are doing is a whole range of things. We're doing obviously market monitoring. Traffic's spending its time looking at both the physical markets and the online markets for wildlife. Um, we're trying to look at the, the nature of the species that are being traded, looking for new species coming into trade, looking then obviously at their population status and whether they can sustain trade, um, and working with the governments involved to try and mitigate the challenges that we might see evolving. But we're also working in strong partnership with, with many other conservation organizations and, and other governments to really develop systems um, and help support their capacity 
to be able to manage their wildlife better and to be able to see something coming down the line that they could prevent. In addition to that, what's quite exciting is um, we've started an initiative working with Google to look at the ability to use online algorithms to look at potential demand in trade uh, for wildlife and the interest in trading in wildlife to try and predict what the next big trend could be, you know, looking at um, search terms, for example, for species in certain languages. Um, and this is something that's just literally had a meeting about it earlier today and it's just very in the very formative stages but I think you know there are also analytical systems that we can use big computing power and the power of big tech companies like Google to help formulate ways and say like the way Google did with flu trends to look for wildlife trafficking trends um, and the reason I'm telling you this top secret project that we're working on is because we can't do it alone and we're hoping that people listening to this will reach out to us and say, hey, that sounds an interesting approach. We want to be involved. We want to work with you. And let's do this together because this is a massive challenge and we can only defeat massive challenges by a massive response. And that is bigger than us. It's bigger than us in isolation as an organization of WF and traffic working together. It's bigger than IUCN. It's bigger than governments. It, need, it needs a movement. It needs a community to come together. And the more partnerships we can form, the better. So we would love people to join us uh, and work with us and see what we can do. And I think ultimately, hopefully, we'll get this system up and running that's more predictive in nature that can alert governments to those trends um, before it's too late. That's really fascinating, and I'm glad that you brought up uh, the importance of uh, folks getting involved and uh, uh, people taking action on this issue. And maybe just as a final note, where should folks go to, to learn more about how they can get more directly involved in this issue for folks who uh, are listening to this conversation and, and, and care about these issues and uh, want to get involved? You know, there are so many organizations out there who are doing great work. Um, you might, I would say, start with your local organization. Um, start with your local government. Start with start at the local level. Work together with people and see what you can do. If you want to know more, obviously, there's worldwildlife.org. The website is full of information. There's traffic.org, full of information about wildlife trade. Um, many other organizations out there. I mentioned Wild Aid earlier, there's WCS, others that are really great organizations doing great work that you can learn a lot from. Um, if you want to get involved, what that can mean is something as simple as making the right choice about what you purchase and realize wherever you are in the world, you're using wildlife. Just be sure where it's from. Think about sustainability and legality. Other than that, you can do all sorts of things, including volunteering, including lobbying your congressman or woman or politician, um, or getting involved and, and getting educated and, and, and doing the same and sharing that with, your, with people that you know who you can influence. Or going through college and, and studying something of relevance and then finding yourself in that career where you can actually put that passion into effect in the, in the long term as, and make it your life's work as the people who sit around me in this in, in my situation are doing in the, in the people here at WWF and Traffic Thanks a lot Crawford for coming on the show and sharing this uh, really important perspective that you have on this extremely important issue well, you know, thanks a lot. I'm, I'm just so pleased you're interested in this, in, in, our, in our work and grateful for the attention. So take care. All right. Bye. All right. That was our conversation with Crawford Allen, who is a senior director at Traffic, the wildlife trade network run by the World Wildlife Fund and the IUCN. 
Crawford's perspective on these wildlife crime issues is invaluable. He recognizes the extreme complexity involved when dealing with global economics, yet remains hopeful for the future of our planet's wildlife. It's good to know that there are experts like Crawford out there working towards collaborative solutions to these troubling issues each and every day. If you want to learn more about Crawford's work and the work going on at Traffic, we'll have additional links and resources available on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC83. If you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or your podcatcher of choice and click subscribe. You can also leave us a rating and review on iTunes. This really helps new people find the show and is always greatly appreciated. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>